your noses to the grindstone, day after day. You spend your work hours overworked and underappreciated, only to return home and deal with bills, landlords, and the ever-oppressive shadow of capitalism consuming you and everything you love. The horrors of capitalism are the horrors we all face, and they are confronted head-on in Proliscariot, tales of horror and class warfare. Contained within are 19 tales of capitalism gone wrong, from designer children to deadly bosses, predatory lenders to plague-ridden laborers, stories from the dark imaginations of Haley Piper, Laurel Hightower, Joanna Koch, and many more. You won't want to miss it. Proliscariot, coming International Workers' Day, May 1st. Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not your last. Don't make me nervous, but I got the jitters with you. I, I oh, really man. liked your writing. Sorry, I can't. I got to get out early. Oh, this is the 80th that. episode we've recorded, man. What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace, now a part of Silver Shamrock Horror Cast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana. YouTube, and all other major platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're talking to the author of Moon of the Crusted Snow, Wabgishig Rice. Say hi, Wab. Hi there, Patrick and Brennan and everybody else. Like I was saying before we started recording, really excited to be talking to you. And uh, real quick shout out to our friend, friend of the show shane hawk he was the one that put you on our radar i'm very thankful for that um also he put on my radar tommy uh, orange you got there there haven't read it yet but very much looking towards that right on indigenous horror i've never thought of that term before and i'm not claiming to invent it i just uh (laughs) i should hope not (laughs) (laughs) oh god Bad look for white guys. Sorry, man. <laughs> Terrible way to start off this episode. <laughs> what? You're you seem like you're into horror. I've never asked you. I didn't see anything online, so I'm just gonna come out. Are you into horror? 
Yeah, I'm into horror. Um, I wouldn't say I'm deeply into horror, although it has been an influence on me basically my entire life, right? And I wouldn't say at all I'm a casual horror fan because I think casual just insinuates that you dip in and you dip out, you know, at your own leisure just uh, for, you know, for giggles now and then. But anytime I've ever... uh, consumed anything horrific whether it's a film or a book or a graphic novel or anything else i've just really appreciated the art form um not just in the sense of uh really going to dark places but understanding humanity and i think that's what i've always really enjoyed about the horror genre no matter what the platform was right so yeah i'd say it's been a constant in my life and um yeah it's just been really fun to explore i guess horrific scenes or uh scary scenarios in in my own writing over the years yeah absolutely um we'll talk about moon or the crusted snow a little later on but i just want to say the experience i had it just kind of felt like the closest which is what all fiction do, all great fiction does is you kind of bridge from one's culture walk of life to another it felt like wherever you were when you wrote this or if we were uh around a campfire that you were kind of just telling the story and it, it felt like you don't want to look away from the fire because it's all dark around and it's scary because you know Scott's fucking around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I I just I'm very curious as to your kind of genesis story of storytelling in general. Did did you have guardians or older siblings or what what really got you into it? Oh, well, I would say it, it, storytelling really uh, formed my identity as a Anishinaabe person and I guess as a quote-unquote professional storyteller, uh, both as a journalist and an author. And that goes back, goes back to my upbringing in the 1980s on the reserve. Um, I'm from a place called Wasoxing First Nation, which is near Perry Sound, Ontario. It's about a two-hour drive north of Toronto. Uh, and it's on Georgian Bay, which is... Uh, off of Lake Huron, right? Um, so, you know, my community has obviously a long history of being displaced and colonized. And as a result, there was a forced separation from culture and from like, you know, just traditional Anishinaabe family and community values, right? Um, you know, indigenous nations right across this land have have similar stories. Um, but for me, uh, I was fortunate to grow up in a time when my community really made a concerted effort to reclaim some of the culture and history that had been taken from us. And a big part of that was the storytelling. Um, I My earliest memories are of sitting around with, with elders or sitting around with elder family members and just learning about being the Shinabe, learning about the old stories that used to be spoken all the time, you know, in our community and in our land, and uh, really feeling connected with uh, my roots as a result, right? So uh, I was fortunate that I, you know, had a keen understanding of the importance of storytelling as a result of that. And it was like, um, I guess it was outside of the sort of mainstream uh, formats that I had become familiar with as a child, like, like film and books and so on, you know, this was like an oral sort of spoken experience. Right. And, um, I just really appreciated and enjoyed that. And, and that stayed with me my whole life. And by the time, you know, I got to high school, went, I went to high school off reserve 
um, just being in English class and really connecting with books in, in an additional way, I guess, uh, more of um, a critical way, uh, really got me into that sort of method of storytelling, too. And I just found creative writing to be a really um, fun hobby for me when I was just a teenager on the res, right? So I would write, like, for fun, uh, you know, just things about growing up on the res, you know, funny things, weird things, scary things. Um and happy things, of course, uh, but never really saw that turning into any sort of career or anything like that. Right. Uh, but yeah, as the years went on, you know, I got to know indigenous authors. Um, I had an aunt who was really keen on introducing me to the works of indigenous authors. And, and that's sort of what really planted the seed. And I just kept writing in my spare time. You know, I was fortunate to start a career as a journalist um, and I did that for a long time. Uh, but all the while I was doing all this uh, fiction writing in my spare time. So. So, yeah, to answer your question, it goes back to my upbringing on the res and just really uh, connecting with different ways to tell stories over the years. Oral storytelling. That, there's mm. something really special about that. I mean, that's how our people started. That's how you. Yeah. I mean, think about it. The, um, the expression of written word and literacy, it really didn't become a thing until Gutenberg in the 1500s. Yeah. So it's. In the scheme of the human race, timeline-wise, it's it's fairly new. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I totally agree. You know, like we talk, we indigenous people more broadly talk about how we come from an oral tradition, but everybody does. Cultures around the world come from an oral tradition, right? And those stories were passed down for thousands of thousands of years, as you said, before, you know, the printing press was was uh, invented. Um, of course, there was like different interpretations of, of writing scripture on walls and in art and, and, and so on. But uh, this method of reading words on a page yeah, is really fairly recent, as you point out. So, yeah, yeah, I always try to point that out, too. It's not just an indigenous thing. It's a worldwide thing. It's really neat seeing how smart humans were before, you know, technology and whatnot. I mean, <laughs> I, I went to school for computer electronics and I was learning, uh, you know, the equations that a lot of them I don't remember because I don't use most of them now. But <laughs> these were equations invented a few hundred years ago. Uh, you know, you got all these types of electrical and mechanical systems. All, all, all that was you use your brain. You don't even have a calculator. Yeah, <laughs> it's, so it's really fascinating just because I, I, I love I love history and it's seen the the similarities between one culture and another that weren't even connected completely isolated from each other. It, it's fascinating, man. So, yeah. Brendan, I'm kind of branching out into weird territories. Why don't you pick up, buddy? <laughs> no, you know what? I think we both kind of honed in on the same thing in that uh, in that answer. And that was the oral storytelling. And I, I was curious because, you know, we, we just talked about the root of humanity coming up on oral storytelling. But you're saying you grew up on a res in the in the 80s. Um, and that's, you know, for for the most part, that's something that's, you know, kind of been lost. I would imagine there aren't very many people, you know, around our age that really have uh, a lot of recollection, you know, partaking in oral storytelling. I, I'm kind of curious from your perspective uh, and be it as a listener or as a storyteller yourself, what are your key differences between oral and, you know, writing? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think with, um, 
Well, and Patrick noted this uh, earlier, and, and, you know, I was very, very honored by this uh, analysis, Patrick, that, you know, you said reading my book was like having someone tell it to you. Um, and, and I do really try to emulate that in my writing, you know, and part of that is not just vocalizing the words as I type them out, but thinking about what could be believable in a sort of storytelling setting right and um i think part of that is my own relationship with the english language and how i i perceive it you know like like for me i've made a living off of english you know um it is like like i come from a a mixed background right like my dad is nishnabe and my mom is a white canadian so you know english is part of my heritage for sure but in terms of how I view it uh, in relation to my indigenous language, to Anishinaabemowin, you know, like I have more of an emotional connection to Anishinaabemowin, uh, mostly because I don't speak it fluently, you know, that that was a language that was, uh, you know, separated from, you know, my family and my people and so on. Um, and, and, you know, it means more to me to try to revive that. Uh, but with English, you know, I've learned how to use it over the years. Like I've learned how to use it to make a living, you know, as a journalist and then as a fiction author. Um, so, in uh, the stories I heard growing up, like in that oral tradition, were all in English with a little bit of uh, Nishnabemwin or, or Ojibwe, as, as it's also called here and there. Um, but yeah, like in terms of how I try to adapt that to the written word, it is trying to consider how something would be shared um, if I was to speak it to somebody else. Uh, but also that's sort of inspired by how I've received the stories of my culture and, and how I try to incorporate those into the written word. Like I wouldn't like try to dress them up in any sort of like fancy or verbose way at all because that's not how they're told you know it would you know if i if i took like an old like legend or like a trickster story and and sort of wrote it as if it was i was doing like a phd in english lit and took it back to the res you know people would laugh at me and they'd be like what's this shit man what, what are you trying to do here kind of thing right so um part of that is like it's really weird to consider it that way but part of it is like respecting the story by um keeping it as straightforward as possible in english you know um but yeah a big part of that too is i try to incorporate as much in uh, ojibwe words as possible to sort of uh you know reclaim that in some way too you know so um yeah it's something i think about a lot and uh i don't necessarily know if i've figured out how to do it like i consider you know, my process still a learning one and, and it will be until the day I die. Right. I, I don't think I'll ever totally figure this out, but um, I guess just engaging in that uh, internal discussion and um, I guess reaching out to my peers and my family um, who are storytellers uh, to guide me in that way uh, is really helpful too. But um, yeah, it, it is a big part of the consideration when I'm, you know, actually starting to write. Right. You know what I love? I loved the part about kind of keeping it simple, not dressing it up. And and when one of the rain main excuse me, one of the main reasons you know I wanted to ask that question was I have no experience with oral storytelling, and judging by the amount of editing that I've got to do after I write something, I imagine I'd be pretty bad at it right off the cuff. So I- I'm wondering if you are actively trying to kind of capture that you know, feeling of, of oral storytelling, is it more about kind of pouring it onto the page in that simple fashion or going back and trying to craft it into, you know, to capture that moment, I suppose? 
Yeah, good, good question too. It, I would say you're an oral storyteller. You both are. You know, you have this podcast, and and I've heard the way you engage in stories with your guests, and and you guys, everybody has it in them, essentially. I believe, right? And the fact that you're doing this uh, great podcast is testament to that. Uh, but yeah, my you're gonna pro- make me blush, man. I'm sorry, I had to cut you. In. My God, it's not a pretty sight when he blushes. No, I mean you're such a great storyteller. I've read, you know, this book, and it's just it's it's so good. I'm sorry, oh, I had to cut you off for that. Oh, no, that's all good. I appreciate Man. it. But I was just saying, I'm not, I'm not just buttering you guys up. Like, <laughs> I'm not expecting like already chubby enough or anything like that, right? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think for for the process, what like what I'm doing right now is I'm writing the sequel to Moon of the Crested Snow, right? And and yeah, that's very much it. You know, I'm just writing out the story as as not not as quickly as I can, but just to have it there so that I can go back and sort of do not necessarily refining, but. Um, I guess tightening things up uh, for pacing and um, maybe for like believability, you know, um, and and also uh, I guess. Well, before I go into it, like um, a big part of my process is trying to ensure that I remember the whole story before I actually write it down. So I'll spend months like telling the story to myself in my head, saying, "Okay, this is what's happening here, here, here. These are the scenes. Um, This is the major sort of tension builder. This is the climax. This is the resolution and so on. Right. Uh, So, yeah. and, And, you know, I'll go over that that basic outline in my head as much as I can. Then I'll write it down. And I'll sort of uh, write a bunch of different versions of it. Like I'll write one that's maybe like uh, three paragraphs long. And then I'll expand that to like three pages. And then I'll expand that to like maybe 10 pages, right? And these are all just summaries of the story. Um, and then, and I guess in, in some way that's outlining it for me. So then from there, that's when I'll start writing everything out in the actual sort of manuscript. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of... I guess two thirds of the way through the manuscript for the next one right now. And then when I'm done that probably in, in a month or two, I'll go back and and go over it one more time. And then, uh, but yeah, I, I guess my process is to write more, um, and, and expect to cut after, um, just for the sake of like, uh, streamlining the story essentially. Right. Um, not really wasting anybody's time, I guess, you know, (laughs) Maybe that's where that 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 oral sort of um, influence comes from is like, you know, you don't want to waste an elder's time, especially right if you have something to tell them because, you know, they're important people, you know, so yeah, maybe that's where that comes from. I don't know. Um, I was going to jump into Moon of the Cross and Snow, but before we do that, I'm very curious. So this is a new process for me with editing, which is... Um, while you were in first draft, because I've asked guys like J.R. Lansdale, Brennan does this, uh, author Ronald Kelly, a few others will do the opposite of what I do, which has been for the last eight years to write it all out, expect it to be shitty, and then make the second and so forth drafts, make it look like you knew what you were doing. Um, a new approach that I've been introduced by those uh, mentioned authors is write out however many words, the next day you edit add more and so forth Hmm. are either of those processes ones you practice or is there something different that you do um 
I would say there's a bit of that that latter practice in in what I do, um, and, and that's because like the last thing I've written is what's going to be on my mind the next day immediately, right? So I'll wake up the next morning and think, holy shit, maybe I should go back and tweak that a little bit, you know, before I forget about it. Um, so sometimes what I do is like. I'll have, uh, you know, on, on one screen on the left side, the actual manuscript and on the right side, I'll have uh, like a, just a document of, of notes, like chapter by chapter. And, you know, and, and that'll be what I'll refer to on the next pass in that I'll say, OK, chapter 12, go back and take a look at this particular detail or something like that. Right. I do that sometimes. But um, if it's something that I feel is really pressing, then I'll go back and do that tweaking of the, the last thing I wrote. Um, but, yeah, mostly it's it's, it's just to expect. The same thing as you, like expect the first draft to be shittier and then <laughs> not just not really polish up the shit because you don't want to serve up shit no matter what. Right. But, uh, you know, maybe maybe sort of chip away at it and see if your dog like swallowed a diamond ring or something and sort of let let that emerge with the final draft, I guess, you know. Now, this book, audio audio listeners, I'm holding up Moon of the Cross of Snow. I love it. I love you know, I, I got mixed emotions, I want to say. It's horrific because as a New England boy, I left. I went to South Jersey. It's not south enough, apparently, because it still snows here. But <laughs> I, I've experienced some bad snow times, and uh, that's horrifying to experience, never mind what you put your characters through. It's also a very beautiful cover. Look at that, man. It's so surreal. You just see a car. Again, kind of scary if you're in the car, but... <laughs> I love it, but before we dive into the story, just one more question. Eden Robinson, I am not familiar with her. I see what she wrote. Uh, I see her blurb in the back. Um, I'm curious. Who? Why'd you? Did you pick her for the blurb? Uh, I asked her, uh, yeah, for a blurb. She's been uh, a very big influence on me, a big mentor, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and fortunately, you know, I've been very privileged to call her a friend in recent years. Uh, she's a Heisla Heilsuk uh, author from uh, the West Coast, and she has a recently a trilogy out. Uh, it's called the Trickster series. Um, and it's about, like, this this young guy who, who learns that he's a trickster, you know, that he's the son of a trickster. Um, so it has, like, some i guess uh fantastical elements to it but there's some horror too you know some of it is really scary um so uh yeah to to, to your to you guys and your listeners i'd recommend checking out the trickster series um published here in canada and, and i think it's probably been published in the states too uh but yeah i i asked her um if she would honor me with a blurb and and she was very kind to do so and uh yeah just very grateful for for her and and richard van camp and and the other uh blurbers i guess you could say uh kevin hardcastle and warren carry um you know just having that support and and just you know knowing that there are people in your corner is is just massive and i i try to pay that forward too as much as i can because like we all start somewhere right um and you know we all get taken under somebody's wing if if we're fortunate enough to to have that influence too so uh yeah just just having her blurb that um and you know being able to put that on the front is is pretty awesome too right That's so great. yeah yeah speaking of paying forward i asked shane i, I i'm Forget, I'm paraphrasing myself, but I was like, I don't know if he's going to want to do this. And he said, Sh Shane couldn't speak higher of you. He just said uh -huh. he's so friendly. Just talk to him, man. He, he does this all the time. So, yeah, you certainly – it's nice when you hear that, but it's reassuring when someone actually – you know they do it. 
Yeah. Uh, because actions speak louder than words, and there's always a disappointing hero that you look up to every now and then. Um, well, I think like part of that is like the publishing world is is so weird, and it's so hard to know how to crack it, right? And yeah. like you don't learn that in school. Like there is no course you can take to learn how to get published. You know, it's through uh, contacts, through through friends that you're able to make. And and you know, if I didn't have people like that, I wouldn't have been able to become a published author. You know, so yeah, I, I think it's you know, my duty to, to be, you know, the person that others were for me going forward for the rest of my career. I mean, I, I could say a single, every, pretty much everyone that's been on the show. Um, I, I don't feel like I'd have as much fun without Brennan. I don't think I've had as much fun without our guest hosts. Mm. Yeah. You know what? Success. That's a team thing. Yeah, so, absolutely. Totally agree. Speaking of a team thing, um, I want to talk about your acknowledgments. We'll save that for last, but just a kind of a tidbit of that. You mentioned quite a few people that made it possible. So this book was certainly not a one-man journey. Uh, mm. Can you tell us about what it took to write it and then kind of go into... I don't want to ruin it, so we try to let the author explain what the story's about so we, mm. so we don't ruin the surprise. <laughs> Yeah, so do you want me to talk about, uh, I guess, the, the 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 community that helped me create it first and then talk oh, about the story? I would love that. Yes, sir. Okay, cool. Oh, well, geez, you know, like, it, it goes back to, you know, all the people we, we mentioned already uh, who, who, you know, graciously offered uh, words of encouragement for the actual cover. Uh, but it goes back to, you know, my community coming from a very supportive family, uh, both on the res and in town. Because as I mentioned, my dad's from the res and my mom's from town. Um, you know, having a very supportive partner. You know, my wife is always my first proofreader, you know, and uh, um, j just having like uh, people believe in me and, and, you know, and trust me with writing about Anishinaabe experiences because it's a hard thing to do you know um it's really difficult to determine what should be shared in this format and what shouldn't and you know there are some principles that I try to abide by like I only write about things that are already out in the public domain you know I don't write about ceremonial things I don't write about anybody else's personal trauma or anybody else's personal uh, experiences overcoming trauma or overcoming colonialism or anything like that so yeah there are these guidelines I set for myself but i think those have been instilled in me by a supportive community that is not only protective of itself and of its customs and history but also really wants to find a way to promote it and to teach other people about it um so yeah that i think that's at the heart of of anything that i really do uh, but on top of that there are all kinds of like uh i guess industrial and um uh, uh, yeah, I guess the the industry types of people that really help you along the way. Like there's in up here in Canada, you know, we have great uh, arts grants programs like the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. And I wouldn't have been able to write books without uh, funding from those bodies. Um, you know, uh, ECW Press, of course, the the publisher of Moon of the Crested Snow, and Susan Renouf, my editor, who was just uh, phenomenal and and really. Um, 
refining the story and, and getting it ready for the world. You know, she, she was just amazing. Um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head who's all in the acknowledgements. But uh, yeah, that's, you know, it, it basically comes down to uh, trying to acknowledge as many people as possible who have supported me over the years, you know. So, um, but yeah, you know, big one, big one also is my dad who, you know, he's he's an elder and a Shnabi elder who shared a lot of stories with me. And just like, I think, I guess that's a good segue into the actual story itself. Um, yeah, so the, for, for for your listeners who aren't familiar with the story, uh, and I suspect most of them, um, you know, stateside anyway, because uh, it's not as widely accessible in the States. But um, I did yeah. see a picture with, sorry to cut off, I just wanted to, for, for the listeners, this might further motivate them. Gabino Iglesias is a great picture of him holding your oh, book, yeah, man. Right. Yeah. I love yeah, that's it. That's great. I know. Yeah. I, I was really stoked to see that. That was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Go oh, ahead. no, no worries. No need to apologize. Um, yeah. So Moon of the Crested Snow basically is uh, an end of the world story through the perspective of a northern Ontario First Nation. And what happens is a sudden blackout occurs. Um mysterious cause nobody knows why the lights and why the uh, or the uh, communications have gone out uh, but because this community is so far north and because those infrastructures are relatively new to the community it's not a huge of a shock and it's not a big of as big of an adjustment for them to sort of cope in sort of the days after the blackout or, or even the weeks um, but as the blackout drags on it becomes clear that something serious has happened uh, in the world to the south and uh, they don't really learn or get a glimpse of the severity of that until a couple of community members who are in college in one of the cities to the south come up and sort of tell them about the chaos that's going on as a result of the blackout. And then after that, uh, some unwanted visitors uh, from the city come up and uh, one of them in particular tries to exert his will upon the community and uh, aims to manipulate and exploit the people in their weak state. And uh the community has to make some tough decisions about how it's going to survive and proceed so uh i'll leave it there without giving too much away but yeah it's it's you know it's a post-apocalyptic i guess story in in that genre um and for me i I was influenced by a lot of other stories you know in that so-called canon uh you know over the course of my life and i just wanted to try to write one of my own uh because i always really liked looking at what would happen after the end of the world that's uh, yeah excellent um so looking at it from kind of a horror perspective which you know is kind of our thing um one of my favorite elements of a horror story or any story that has horror elements is uh not showing the monster or yeah. showing the monster as little as possible and that theme kind of works a couple ways in the book um one later on that you know could be considered spoiler territory but one up front would be that apocalypse the whole idea of we're in this community and we have no idea what's going on we don't you know at first we think this is just kind of a rolling blackout you know it'd be better in a few in, in you know a couple hours and then a couple mm-hmm. days and we kind of experience it with the townspeople now we realize there's 200 more pages, so it's probably not going to get sorted anytime soon. But <laughs> what what that creates, what you know, knowing knowing what the characters know and only what the characters know, it creates this tremendous sense of isolation 
um, that just worked so well. Um, so I, I wonder, it, it seems silly to ask, was that intentional? Because I'm guessing it was intentional, but can you speak to kind of creating that atmosphere? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's really inspired by, um, the blackout of 2003. Um, and I'm not sure if, if you guys will remember that, but in August of 2003, there was this big, uh, widespread outage that impacted you know, most of the Eastern part of North America. And, uh, I was living in Toronto at the time, but, uh, that day I was back home on the res, uh, house sitting for my dad and stepmom with my brothers, uh, cause they were off on, on holidays. So, um, the power went out and it was weird cause it was like a sunny summer day, you know, uh, that would only happen if there was a storm usually. Right. Uh, so, um, yeah, the, the afternoon dragged on and the lights still didn't come back on. So, uh, my brothers and I got into the, the car and went into town, uh, neighboring Perry sound and, uh, <clears throat> saw that all the lights were out there and, uh, that all the stores were closed and so on. And we talked to some people that we knew and they said, Oh, we heard on the radio that, you know, this is all over the place. It's like Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Boston, New York, like everywhere. And, uh, it's like tens of millions of people. Nobody knows what caused it. Nobody knows what's going to, if it's going to come back on and so on. So my brothers and I went right back to the res and kind of went into survival mode. We're like, holy shit, this is, this might be the big one. So let's, let's sort of get our shit together kind of. So we took an inventory of all the food in our dad's house. Uh, we collected firewood cause like he had an electric stove in his house. We're like, well, that's not going to work. So maybe we'll have to like cook our food over an open fire kind of thing. Right. So we, we totally went there. Um, and, uh, the the night night went on and the power still wasn't back on and the next day uh same thing um so we were getting ready to go fishing because you know right on georgian bay there's a lot of a lot of fishing to be done so we're like okay we're gonna have to eat fish from now on and we're like this is the end of the world all right we're we're ready kind of thing eh? uh but then the power came back on and and we sort of forgot about our plan right away but um being in my community, even though we had no idea what was going on with the blackout, uh, we felt really safe because we knew what to do uh, to feed ourselves. We knew who we could go to if we needed help uh, otherwise. And, and you know, there wasn't really any sense of panic that set in right away. Um, it was just, you know, flipping a switch and going to a place uh, that we knew we could go to. That You know, we had the skills. We grew up with some of that sort of land-based living to, to allow us to, to survive survive if the if that was this sort of real uh scenario you know um so yeah even though we didn't know what the cause was we, we were kind of ready and and that that sort of always stuck with me um went back to toronto to work a couple days later and uh you know uh, learned about you know some of the mild chaos that ensued there like you know people lining up at the gas stations and so on and you know emptying out uh some of the shelves at the grocery store and all that so um that's what really you know, inspired me to, to sort of try to write something like that. Uh, in terms of um, the, the, the monster you don't see, uh, I think that is, th that was of course intentional. Um, I knew what 
caused the blackout in the story um and it wasn't really a question for me ever what if i was going to reveal that i always knew i was going to keep it hidden uh for that sake um because it just you know builds that tension uh in in a pretty fun way if you're the writer you know like it's something you can hold back from the reader and just let them speculate over the course of 200 or so pages you know and and i i find that scary myself as a reader you know if you think of uh the road by cormac mccarthy uh another post-apocalyptic novel that you never find out what caused the end of the world right um even once it's done so yeah i I really like that approach and because you know i had this um i guess economical sort of package of a story that you know there wasn't a whole lot of uh peeling back the curtain that i could do um I, i wanted to leave it that way my editor susan as i mentioned she really encouraged that too um but yeah, like, you know, in, in, in reality, um, you know, my community, when I endured that blackout, um, was right beside a town, just a couple hours north of Toronto, right? A big city. But if this happened in a far northern community um, and everything was totally cut off, uh, you wouldn't learn uh, maybe ever, you know, what ended uh, the world or what caused that, that particular blackout. Um, so, you know, I think that's a, a bit of a dash of sort of a real... Uh, a, a reality, I guess you could say, in that sense, and uh, it was really fun to work with that. Absolutely, I, I love that last point. I never even really considered that—that that if you were truly in this position, you know, the world could come crashing down everywhere else, and you never, you know, short of engaging in a the road type of uh, uh, road trip, you might never find out. You know, mm-hmm. you'd just be you know, powerless and, uh, living off fish and everything. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Now the, the other, th- I, I, I also really liked, um, the idea of using, uh, that to build tension. You said, you know what, you know, caused this apocalypse, but you're not willing to share it. You know, at least not yet. I don't know if that'll come in book two, but the, the, my take on that, and you know, feel free to disagree, is that if you reveal it, no matter how clever it is, no matter how fitting it is to the story, probably 60 to 70% of your audience is going to be disappointed because they envisioned it a different way, or it just they would they they would have done something different. Mm-hmm. Allowing their imagination to write in the rest of the story, to me, that's the best choice. And you know, Patrick will always get on me when he reads my stuff because he he I I enjoy ambiguity a lot more than <laughs> uh, than he does in his writing. But uh, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a lot of good points. And I I now that you've kind of given me that perspective, I can't really see it you know going any other way. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and again, it was fun to do. It's like I, I have a secret that uh, not a lot of other people have, you know, um, and it and it's in some ways it's like my toy that I can play with. Right. But yeah, with book two, I have to I have to reveal something, you know, because if people have stuck around this long that they're willing to invest more time with the story and, and my characters and I feel I owe them at least some shred of an explanation, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually just like literally working through that right now. <laughs> It could always be a red heron too. You could just be fucking with us. Yeah. With what the reveal is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I always hey look, man, I'm a writer too. And yeah. I don't try I don't know where the hell I'm going half the time. Yeah. So Yeah. The Turns out that, it was the uh the family of that moose from the opening scene all along. Yeah. They put they put paid to the rest of Canada and just worked their way down from there. Exactly. Maybe yeah. at some point 
in America, Stephen Graham Jones's Elks yeah. has something to do with comparison <laughs> with those moose. Brandon, when you said that's that's the first thing I thought was uh, Stephen Graham Jones book. The first <laughs> yeah. thing I thought that's hilarious. <laughs> I've you know what man, I read that book a few months ago, and that's the only book that I've read by him um, so far. If I didn't have all these awesome authors coming on, then I probably would have poured through his whole bibliography. But my yeah. God, what a story! Yeah, it's wild. That's the only book of his I've read too. But yeah, it blew me away. Amazing. Yeah. Um. And. I don't know if it's exactly halfway through, but there is a point in that book when you're like, at least for me, I was like, uh, I think I'm too dumb to understand this. And then I read a little bit more. I'm like, oh, I see what he's doing now. Wow. Yeah. I've never read that before. Yeah. Oh, it, that happened to me, too. Exactly. I was like, a am I really following this as I should be? <laughs> you know, and then I was like, OK, I think I get it now. <laughs> so what I loved about Moon is it's yeah, it's a creature monster story whatever word you want to use but it's really the story about the crumbling of, of humans and for i don't know maybe you or my sake even or whoever's listening horror for me anyways isn't one thing it's everything this is horror it's real life horror man it's the crumbling of a society a close-knit society i mean look at what happens i don't know about up there but when it snows really bad especially in jersey because they're not it's weird how unprepared they are <laughs> like I, I got trapped on my street a few years ago and it was off of a main road uh for a week because they couldn't plow my street <laughs> oh wow it's about 500 feet away from the main road i'm like oh, i don't work at a place where i they need me or nothing that's fine <laughs> but um people panic and they go after weird things perishables things that yeah. won't make any sense um, so I don't think this gives anything away, but at one point the grocery store is out of product. Mm. And that's just one example. That's one Lego in the building of Legos. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. Uh, I think it was Paul Tremblay that mentioned how the, the, the after effect, the aftermath is usually the most interesting thing to see how the writer creates the rest of the story. And you nailed it, man. Oh, thanks. Uh, Appreciate that. Uh, I just got a comment on your shirt. I love Nine Inch Nails. Oh, Trent, thanks. Trent Reznor is like freaking Mozart, man. He, yeah. I, I, I love everything that guy does. Him and Atticus Ross really got a thing going yeah. on nowadays. I listened to a lot of Nine Inch Nails when I was writing uh, Moon of the Crescent Snow. So. Just got to ask that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. are, are you doing that with the sequel? Um, you know what? Uh, I haven't really figured out like my playlist for it yet. Yeah, I've weirdly uh, been listening to a lot of classical music. Um, mm. Nothing in particular that I know of. I just the CBC uh, has this the stream or the show that comes on at nine in the morning, and that's usually when I start my writing. And I just leave it on, and it's like okay, you know, it's 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 helping somehow. But uh, no, I, I definitely got to think of like some. I guess um, more thematic, uh, lyrically music that uh, that can fit, you know, the next part because you know with Nine Inch Nails, obviously, you know, the day the world went away, you know, songs oh, like that, right? Yeah, such a good song. Mm -hmm. uh, I love when he remixes his own albums too because they're mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Now, uh, it's weird. Like, I don't know how you go with music. Like, obviously, you write to music, and it's not always instrumental because I know some authors won't write to anything but silence. Some write mm -hmm. with only instrumentals. Me personally, it's weird. It's just what I can't predict it. Like I, yeah. I just turned in this short story 
that was heavily inspired by Candyman and Hellraiser, and it's about basically a train conductor that narrowly escapes a train crash that actually happened less than half a mile from me in 1880. Oh, wow. And I'm, I'm only listening to Alice in Chains, and I got no idea why. Uh, no, no connection. Uh, <laughs> cool. Brennan, you got... Brennan, you got any more questions for this book in particular, or, or uh, you want to move on? No, I mean, I mean I'll throw in that um, I, I I don't think you can really necessarily nail down a process for what music you know inspires what you're what you're working on. You just kind of got to roll with it, and if it's mm-hmm. all Alice in Chains, uh, it's all Alice in Chains. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so you mentioned that you're uh, m- more than halfway through the manuscript for the new one. So I, I, I'd imagine there's probably not much you can tell us about it, but anything you want to share, we're open to. Uh, and I wondered if, if you could talk about getting hooked up with uh, Penguin Random House Canada. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, c- I can tell you a, b- a bit about the sequel. Uh, basically, getting hooked up with Penguin Random House is what... I guess push the sequel along and I didn't plan on writing a sequel to this when I originally finished it. Um, I, I literally thought, okay, they're riding off into the sunset and I won't give anything away about the ending, but that's sort of how I felt about it, you know? And, uh, mostly because like I'd spent, um, so much time, you know, trying to dream up the story and then trying to write it, uh, because I was working full time as a journalist for CBC, right. You know, I did my writing in my spare time and, you know, it took a lot of sort of creative energy, um, when I didn't have a lot left in the tank. Right. So I was like, Oh, if, if it took me that long to work this out, then I don't think I can, you know, take it any further. But, um, I was connected with an agent named Denise Bukowski after Moon of the Crested Snow was published. And uh, she got in touch with me because, you know, the book got a little bit of buzz here in Canada. And she said, do you have any representation? And I said, no. And she said, well, uh, do you want to try to get a sequel to Moon of the Crested Snow out there? And I was like, well, I actually haven't really thought of that yet. But, uh, you know, if you think you can find some interest and giddy up, let's go. Right. And and that's when I started, started really trying to develop what a part two would look like. And I had to think really hard about um, what a compelling story would be in the sort of aftermath, because Moon of the Crescent Snow is about the moment, right? It's about the the ending moment and survival in that immediate aftermath. Um, so, you know, a next part of the story would logically have to uh, resume in this world um, a time after uh, to show what has been created um, in this aftermath, you know? So uh, she found interest at Penguin, Penguin Random House. And, and what they did at first was paired me with an editor before anything was ever signed uh, because they wanted to feel me out. They wanted to see if there was a story there that they could do. So his name's Rick Meyer, and I'm working with him right now. And, and he was great. We just had uh, a phone call once a month. Um, and he would just ask me, you know, what are you thinking for the sequel? Um, how would the story look? You know, where is the conflict? Uh, where are the challenges for these characters? And uh, eventually we I, I came up with something for him and then they offered me a contract. And, and 
you know, the, the advance was good enough that, um, you know, I, I could buy some time for a few months and, and I decided to leave uh, my job at CBC. So it all worked out really well. And, uh, I feel very fortunate that this sort of, uh, cards fell that way because, um, it all coincided with like the start of the pandemic and, uh, you know, I, I working at CBC was pretty tough then because all you're covering is the pandemic, right? <laughs> like there's hardly anything else to talk about, you know? And I was like, holy shit. And it, like to think of still doing that a year later, like, oh man. But anyway, um, <laughs> Yeah, so we got to that point, and and the story basically is uh, about ten years after the end of of the first book, and um, yeah, this won't give too much away. But in the first book, it's revealed that this community originally lived uh, on on the Great Lakes. You know, they were displaced to far northern Ontario as a result of just just quote unquote Indian removal that happened all across this this continent, right? So in part two, they decide that you know they're sort of depleting their resources in the north where they've been for a long time, and that they decide they want to go south to see what's left of the world, and also hopefully uh, reclaim their original home on uh, on Georgian Bay. So oh, um wow. yeah, so a group of six of them um and I won't say who because that'll give away the ending <laughs> of the story, but a group of six of them uh goes on this quest. So it's, it's basically a quest story uh to see what's left uh uh see what's left of the world and try to go back home essentially. Oh man, I had no clue when I heard there's a sequel what you were going That's cool. No, that thanks. sounds very yeah. cool. It's it's fun. It's it's fun to work it through because you know, like, um, again, I had to dream up this whole other story, this whole other part too, right? But fortunately, like, the world is already built. The characters are already there. Um, so there's not a there's obviously no backstory, uh, no background I have to dream up because there's a whole other book that's already been written. You know, so yeah, so it's fun in that sense. Um, but it's like. It, it feels a little rushed because, you know, it took me like five, six years to dream up and then write Moon of the Crested Snow. And now I'm doing this in, in like less than a year. Right. So so we'll see how it goes. It's, it's, it's fun, though, to be able to do it full time. Yeah, because Moon was uh, what was it, published in 2015. 2018. Yeah, 2015. Uh, uh, your Google do, is broken. I didn't, do, <laughs> I didn't do my homework correctly. Oh, and there's a little... How do you pronounce your son's name? Because it says to my son, and I don't want to butcher it. Oh, Jequis. Jequis, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool name, man. Yeah, thanks. And then what's your, uh, I want to talk about this later, but hey, screw it. We'll do it now. What's your little guy's name? His name's Ayabe. So Jequis and Ayabe, and they're Ojibwe names. Uh, Jequis basically means like uh, firstborn or older brother. Oh, and Yabe, Yabe means uh, deer or buck. So yeah, uh -huh. it's uh, yeah the custom in in our family the way we do it is I ask my dad uh, to to name them and uh, yeah he sort of comes up with with their names so it takes the pressure off us anyway me and my wife <laughs> and please tell me if I butchered it but Yahweh how uh, how old is he because he seems like he's pretty close to my kid's age yeah I think I think so he's uh, he's gonna be ten months uh, in in a okay. couple of weeks yeah how's your how's your little guy again uh he Philip was born. Uh, in November of 2019, so he's like 16 months old. Okay, cool. It's so weird, man. Like our kids, they all they know is people in masks outside. Yeah. That yeah, I I I would like to be in their brain to just kind yeah. of figure out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd be a story. 
Yeah. Well, even like our, our Yabe, he was born in June, right? Like right as the pandemic was was peaking or yeah. taking off. And like he doesn't he hasn't really seen other babies. You know, he hasn't really been around them. Um, He's barely been around family. Uh, he sees them all the time on screens. Right. But uh, I mean, you, yeah, who knows how that impacts him. Right. I guess we'll, we'll see at the end of all this. But uh, yeah, it's bizarre. So we little guy has seen very few kids and. Like he's seen a close, only recently a close uh, friend's kid um, who's four, and he just wanted to hold her hand and hug oh, her. Oh yeah, I like that's so cute. Kids are yeah. kids are great. Um, we're getting way off track, man. I don't even know where the hell this was going. <laughs> I love seeing new parents' pictures, though, especially when they're around my kids' age, because I I don't know. I just like to see what other kids are up to. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I like to see how other writer parents are with their kids. I mean, how's yours with, it's probably too young, but um, does he pick up books or does he find any fascination in those at this point? Uh, Not really, but his older brother, Jequist, definitely does. Like we, we, you know, share books with him from the beginning and we'll do the same thing with the Abe as soon as he, uh, you know, sort of takes an interest in them. Um, But yeah, Jequist loves books and, uh, you know, he, he's in school now. It's his first year of of kindergarten. Um, And again, as you're saying with like the new experiences, like he just started school, but everybody in school wears masks. Right. So that's, that's all he knows at this point, you know? Uh, so, but at this point here in, in Sudbury, uh, in Northern Ontario, we're, we're in a lockdown. So school's all online at the moment. So, uh, so that's been a bit of a challenge in terms of actually like trying to write too. It's like, you know, getting him on online with his school and then figuring out how to, how to get writing done after that. Uh, but we just, we make it work, right? We make do. Absolutely. Now, the one thing that stuck out to me when you were talking about the actual writing of Moon was uh, the funding part. What is that, man? Because I don't think we got that here in the States. Yeah, I know. And, and uh, I, I, I hear that from American writers all the time. Like we have uh, some pretty big funding bodies here in Canada. The main one is the Canada Council for the Arts. And I don't know what their overall budget is, but it's a lot. Uh, and they have money that they just give out to artists, you know, whether it's uh, playwrights or actors or musicians or authors or, or organizations uh, in, in communities. Um, so, yeah, you can apply for grants uh, every once in a while. And, and I've been funded, I think, four times by the Canada Council over over the last like 15 years or so. And, and basically they'll just give you money to, to write or to focus on your, your artistic uh, practice. Um, so yeah, as a writer, basically you, you ask for money, you sort of pitch a project to them. You say, this is what, you know, I want to do. I'm, I'm sort of dreaming up a novel about this and I'd like some money just to spend some time doing some writing or some researching. And if they like your proposal, they'll give you the money. Right. Um, so it's not always easy. It's not as easy as just asking, you know, it's a big, <laughs> long, it's a big, long, intense application process. And then you have to get adjudicated. Right. And, and, hundreds of people apply for each program um every year uh but yeah that has been huge for me and when i was working at cbc uh if i got a grant i was able to go on unpaid leave from cbc and then just spend a few months just writing full-time 
And yeah, I wouldn't have been able to, well, it would have taken a lot longer, you know, because I would have just been confined to my, my evenings and weekends if, if I wasn't able to take those leaves of absence. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's the Canada Council for the Arts, and then all the provinces have their own arts councils, like the Ontario Arts Council, where I live. Uh, they've been very generous to me over the years, too, in, in giving me grants. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, from what I gather, it's a different world in that sense from, mm-hmm. you know, the arts realm in the United States. But uh yeah, so yeah, I don't know what the solution is, uh, and and I think you know, thankfully here in Canada, like those or those organizations or those institutions are are sort of pillars, right, of the arts, and like no government would ever cut them because that would be hugely unpopular if if they did. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard Stan Lee say something. Brent, jump in just right after this, buddy. I heard Stan Lee say something about how um, picture the world without any art, no television, no art in any format. You go crazy. Everyone, everyone needs a little relief, and everyone loves art in one form or another. So, for a government body to recognize that and actually fund it—that's incredible. Yeah, very fortunate, as I said, for sure. Go so ahead, smug with your uh, fund, with your author funding, and your universal health care. <laughs> this is why Canadians are nicer. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no, really, though, that that program sounds incredible, and. You know, to to also have the the knowledge that the government wouldn't dare cut it because it would be such an unpopular decision. I mean, I I have to imagine that if America enacted something like that, people would be chomping at the bit to cut it. You know, mm. um, the the it it's just very telling the value on on art and creating art uh, to for the betterment of society. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, a lot of those institutions have begun to prioritize so-called marginalized communities like indigenous artists or, uh, you know, uh, black artists or, you know, new new Canadians as, you know, uh, as they're known. Um, and, and part of that is to also like, I wouldn't say repair damage, but, you know, put the spotlight where it's due, you know, rather than keeping it on sort of the mainstream uh, sort of myth of of this Canadian pleasant identity, right? That, that isn't actually uh, true, you know, like you, when you consider the treatment of Indigenous people and so on, right? But... Um, I fucked up again. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. No, that's uh, th- like that's... But but that's like how um, Canadians have been sort of uh, that that's the image they've been force fed to even me like that. That's what I believed for a really long time until I really learned like the true history of, of what's gone on in, in this country. But at the same time, too, to get back to your original point. Yeah, it's a, a core value of supporting the arts that makes me proud to be Canadian, too. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, yeah, again, I'm, I'm very thankful that we have that kind of funding. Um because, yeah, that, that's how I sort of do my thing, you know? So, of course, I wouldn't ever, like, publicly talk shit about the Canada Council for the Arts or the Interior Arts Council or anything like that either, you know? So, <laughs> Brennan, I, uh, I I found this interesting. Wob is both a Canadian fan of sports teams and an American fan of a different sports team. Okay. Now, where do you – I know you lo- you're a Buffalo Bills fan. Yeah. And you're a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. Mm-hmm. Are there any other teams? Like what? What draws you to them? 
Um, well, with the Leafs, it's it's very much like, uh, yeah, part of that sort of Canadian tradition, I guess, right? I uh, grew up with that. My dad was a big, is a big Leafs fan. And uh, yeah, it's just been part of, I guess, sort of my identity in, in many ways. The Bills, uh, the interesting thing there is like we have the Canadian Football League, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's obviously not as big or as as influential as the NFL. And and I I liked it growing up. Like Toronto has the Argonauts, that's their team. But mm-hmm. um, we I think back in the late '80s started getting Bills games on TV because uh, we're sort of in like Central Southern Ontario, right? And I was like, this is so much better in the CFL. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how I became a Bills fan, essentially. Uh, and, and yeah, still still really enjoy it. Um, uh, in terms of basketball, yeah, eventually, like, we got the Toronto Raptors back in the mid-90s, mid-90s too, right? So that it's became my it. basketball team. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, sports, like, it, it's funny, eh? Like, ultimately, they don't really have any sort of bearing on my day-to-day life there you know but i've been following sports since the beginning so it's more or less like a fun distraction although like being a leafs fan or a bills fan like they always lose in the end so it's like why the hell am i doing this to myself man like pouring three hours of my night into just getting pissed off in the end but i guess that's part of the process too i am sorry you had to watch buffalo lose to our patriots for like 20 years straight man i know tables have turned though (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. My uh, my paternal grandfather. He so I'm from Massachusetts. I grew up all Boston sports teams, but my paternal grandfather was a Giants fan and a Pats fan, which went to my dad and then me. Uh, one of my favorite players is Mike Strahan. Uh, Mike Strahan. I always butcher his last name. Mike Strahan. Oh yeah, um, cool. Just super nice guy, and he kicked yeah. ass on the field. What's not yeah. to like, you know? But the reason. My grandfather liked him. Uh, that team, the uh, Giants, was because they were the only team that aired. The Pats didn't air in the early days when he used to watch. It sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but then 2007 came around, and I'm like, why am I doing this? I, yeah. I can't. I can't anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that must have been a weird year for you, right? That, that Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah, the 2011 came, and they're like, hey, here's another reason. <laughs> <laughs> So the anthology with Shane Hawk, is there anything that you can tell us about that? Because I thought something was public about it. Uh, I don't know. He he sent me an email recently uh, just sort of um, giving an update on where things were uh, with uh, a list of uh, potential contributors. I don't. I can't remember if I'm allowed to say who's all on there or not. I probably shouldn't. Uh, I'm on there. I can say that anyway. Yeah, uh, don't worry about the others. But uh, yeah, when when he reached out to me, I was like, "Holy shit, this is a cool idea!" And um, I immediately started thinking about where I was going to go, and uh, you know how I would sort of. Um, you know, contribute something to this anthology. And the first thing I thought was like, my grandma used to tell me scary ass stories when I was a kid, you know, just like <laughs> these old Ojibwe horror stories, you know? And I was like, I wonder if I should go there in, in some way. And uh, yeah, like immediately, uh, cause I don't think I've really specifically focused on something, I guess uh, in, in a sort of horror genre in terms of a short story ever. Right. And so <clears throat> to me, like the possibilities seem kind of endless and I'm just really, uh, eager to actually write something and to see the whole anthology come together. I would love to read a short story about you, especially with, again, indigenous horror, um, which is what I believe the anthology focuses on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I grew up in 
pretty much a few towns over from where Brennan grew up, and it's in southeastern Massachusetts. Boston's was 30 miles north, Providence like 30-something miles south. Plymouth, Massachusetts was, I don't know, an hour drive away from me. So we grew up in Wampanoag territory. And I'm, again, fascinated with history. What you learn on your own outside of school, oh my goodness, it just blew <laughs> me away when I first learned about King Philip's War. Uh, met a comment um, how it was the bloodiest per capita on uh, American soil ever, more than the Civil War. It's, hmm. it, it's, it's, I bring up how fucking crazy the truth is so much that I annoy the hell out of my wife. She's like, yeah, I know, Pat. What are you going to do about it? I'm like, nothing. I'm just <laughs> pissed off. <laughs> so the stories I read there, man, there, there's some interesting stuff, and there's just so many tribes. Um, I want to see more of it. I want to read more of it. Is there anyone mm. that you can promote or that you want to talk about? Like we, we've talked about Stephen Graham Jones. Shane Hawk is coming out with quite a few yeah. interesting stuff. And then uh, – Tommy Orange, he's got there, there. I don't know what else he has. So is there any other indigenous authors that you would like to personally promote? Oh, yeah, lots. And uh, I'm always scared about getting this question because I don't want to leave anybody out, right? <laughs> oh, you know you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, yeah, you know, I, I one good friend of mine, uh, his name's Richard Van Camp. Uh, he's a Tlicho author from uh, – from the north, from uh, the Northwest Territories originally. And he has some uh, stories that I, I would say qualify as horror, um, some short stories. Uh, he has this uh, short story collection called Godless But Loyal to Heaven, which came out uh, maybe five or six years ago. Um, but he's really inspired by a lot of the traditional stories, and and he really incorporates some of the scarier elements into some of them. Um, that's not all he does, though. He does basically all kinds of uh, all kinds of genres. Mm. Uh, but I, I just talked to him today, so that's why he's top of mind. Um, but yeah, you know, I was influenced by you know so many great authors like uh, Louise Erdrich, an Ojibwe author from uh, um, what's known as uh, I think Mich Minnesota or Michigan. I can't remember exactly. Apologies uh, to Louise and her family that I don't remember exactly where they're from, but they're Ojibwe. They're in Nishnabe, anyways. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you know who else? Uh, John uh, Joshua Whitehead. He's a Cree and Ojibwe author from uh, out, out west on the plains. Um, Geez, so many more. Uh, Alicia Elliott is a Six Nations author. Um, works in nonfiction, but uh, in terms of like revealing truths, uh, as you're saying, like she does an excellent job of just really contextualizing history and and showing these past horrors and how they uh, sort of persist today, like how they continue to cause problems, right, for Indigenous people. So, um, yeah, I could I could go on and on and on, but off the top of my head, that's uh, that's who comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, just in, again, in Wampanoag Territory, the, uh, the I think it was the Massachusetts government just reclaimed over 100 acres of land that they gave back to the to the tribes that were there before uh, colonists stole it. <laughs> and oh, yeah. That, that was in 2020, man. It's yeah. fucking crazy. Um, Brennan, how about you take us away, man? So... I've got a question in regards to indigenous authors. If if we've got a listener who is kind of unsure about taking on um, horror, sci-fi, any kind of genre fiction from an indigenous author, 
because they're concerned they might not be able to relate to it, what kind of message would you want to send a potential reader like that? Oh, that's uh, thanks for bringing that up, Brandon. I think that's a really important uh, point to highlight. And I- I'm always thinking about this because it's a question I get a lot if I'm doing like a, a panel discussion or if I'm being interviewed by by the media. Um, and I think every other Indigenous author or any other author who's not sort of part of the so-called mainstream gets this. And the question is like, who are you writing for? Are you writing for your people or are you writing for quote unquote, everybody else? And, and that's a really difficult position to put authors in because it sort of makes them choose who their audience is in a public way. Right. And in that sense, it sort of uh, creates a divide between potential readership. You know, if you say, if I say, Oh, I wrote moon of the, crested snow for Anishinaabe people so that they could you know have something of their own they could read then everybody else would be like well I'm not going to get this so why would I even bother trying to pick it up uh and and then the other sort of uh misconception is is if I say well I I wrote this for everybody else to sort of understand Anishinaabe culture um in that sense it could alienate some Anishinaabe people who would say well I I know about that so I'm not going to read it Um, So it's not that binary, though. It's not that black and white. And there's a lot more nuance in storytelling that I think everybody really needs to consider. And that's what I would remind people who uh, would be going into, I guess, trying to read uh, works by Indigenous authors is that, you know, to to be a writer, to be a storyteller, um, you really dive into the gray areas, right? And you you grab onto those things that anybody could relate with in those gray areas. And and that's the beauty of it. You know, you sort of get you, you sort of get into the mud and, and you sort of thrash about finding those things that, you know, you hope to connect with readers um, because overall you want to invoke empathy in a reader and you want to convey humanity um, because that's what's connecting everybody to each other. You know, if they choose to engage with other humans through art, um, that's what they want, you know. Um, so to, to back up just a little bit, you know, if, uh, you know, living life as a human, regardless of your race or culture or whatever else, is very much a spectrum. You know, there's just there's not one way to be Nishnabe or to be white or, you know, there's not one way to go about understanding that way of life or to heal, to get back to that way of life if it was taken from you. Right. It's a spectrum. And there's all sorts of things to consider when you're presenting something for, I guess, readership or or viewers or, or listeners or anybody else to try to um, engage with what you're creating. You know, I think my peers and what I'm trying to uh, get at the heart of is, is just these human experiences to convey, you know, what we have endured and what we have encountered as, as people, um, not just as, as colonized or displaced people, but as people who want to raise kids in a good way, people who are proud of their culture, um, who are proud of their history and so on. So yeah, it, in that sense, like uh, I relate to reading uh, experiences of other indigenous nations, you know, um, even a book like uh, Tommy Orange is there, there, you know, I don't know what it's like to be an indigenous person in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, but I know what it's like to be, you know, just a person trying to make a go of it in a city. So that's what I'm going to look for in that story. And then I'm going to learn about what that particular experience is. Right. So I think, yeah, like, 
the, the, that question is an important one to ask because it can be daunting because you don't know if you don't know, like you don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, as the old saying goes, and you don't know what you're going to get into or how something is going to make you feel if, if you're not familiar with it at all. Um, but you, you both can relate with this. I know because you know, you, you want to write a good story and you want to, you want readers to connect with what you're writing. Um, so yeah, I would just tell readers who aren't familiar with indigenous literature is, uh, you know, humanity is at the core of it. And and what I think we're trying to do, and I don't speak for everybody, is that we're just trying to um, make our fellow people be proud of themselves and see themselves uh, represented in literature. And also to teach other people about those ways of life at the same time, because that that can be a thing. Those, both of those things can happen at the same time. Right. So, uh, yeah. So those uh, the, those would be my words for potential readers. That's a damn good answer. Um, and you know, th- there's a lot of great stuff in there. The one I really latched on to was humanities at the core of it. Um, it w- we're telling stories about people and the, you know, if, if you're somebody like me who reads upwards of a hundred books a year, reading stories about people that come through a variety of different lenses, uh, different experiences, different places in the world, um, it's, it's just necessary. Otherwise mm-hmm. you're going to get burned out reading the same, the same thing over and over and mm-hmm. over again. I agree. Yeah. Good point. All right. So, you know, I was just thinking about this when you were answering Brennan's question, I know you don't speak for everyone, your personal opinion. How do you feel about non-indigenous people writing in any capacity, be it, a secondary character, a one-off character or a point of view character through indigenous eyes. Oh, good question. Uh, I'm I'm fine answering this question because uh, it's something I discuss often with with all kinds of people. Um, yeah, I, short answer. I believe a non-indigenous person can write uh, about indigenous people or indigenous experiences. <clears throat> It's uh, very complicated, though, and it's a process that I think the writer really needs to engage with in a respectful and meaningful way. So I guess one thing that I I really don't think should happen or that I'm not comfortable with is a non-Indigenous person writing from an Indigenous point of view. Um, At this point in our world, uh, I don't think that's something that can be just researched and then written about um, because it is an authentic, very complicated experience that um, I believe has to be lived. I don't believe it's it's something that can be just uh, dropped into and then written about. Um, secondary characters or other characters on the fringe, uh, absolutely. I believe they do need to be included in stories written by non-Indigenous authors. Uh, however, you know, um, that author needs to do some work ahead of time to ensure that character is reflected properly and doesn't just become, I guess, uh, a wallflower or just uh, a diversity sort of quota uh, checkmark kind of thing, right? For for the sake of their story, you know? Um, so how that works, I think, it can be in different ways, you know? Um, of course, I think 
ultimately what should happen is the non-indigenous authors should spend some time with actual indigenous people um, from a particular culture that they want to write about or from a particular community, uh, visit with them, um, learn about them, uh, learn their history, uh, learn about the treaty that may uh, cover where they're living, um, learn about, you know, some of their particular customs and so on. Uh, learn about, you know, the the traumas that endure as a result of being displaced and, and so on, right? Um, and and it's it's not like what people need to be mindful of is is that indigenous people have been have been taken from since settlers arrived on this continent, right? Um, you know, first their land was taken, uh, and then once they were removed from their land, uh, you know, resources were taken from that land, whether, you know, it was through mining or forestry or agriculture or whatever else. Uh, you know, up here in Canada, and, and this existed in the United States as well, uh, children were taken away from communities to um, have their culture erased from them. And up here it was in residential schools, and in the States it was in boarding schools, right? Right. Uh, so, you know, you, you know, you had this successive wave of, of being taken from, of things being stolen from you. So what a uh, non-Indigenous storyteller needs to be mindful of is not taking a story uh, from a community or a people, not perpetuating that cycle and being mindful of that relationship, you know, um, because Indigenous communities have lost so much, you know, they've mm. lost language, they've lost culture, they've lost their drums, they've lost their ceremonial items and so on, you know. So um, I think that can happen in a good way, though, uh, if, if an author or a writer is forthright uh, about what their intentions are and as long as it's you know engaged within a good way then then that can absolutely happen for sure uh but you know that relationship has to be built first uh because that's one thing that hasn't really happened uh despite everything you know um in both canada and in the united states you know um indigenous nations believed in many ways that they're entering into good faith uh, agreements with the, the settler authorities, but that didn't happen at all. Right. right so, right. so yeah, it's just a matter of not perpetuating that cycle. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a very long answer to your, your question, but I think it's really complicated. And basically what I would just advise people is, is, you know, uh, just be a good person about it. Go into it with an open mind, uh, prepare to give back. If you're planning on, you know, taking some details or, or some information or for some, or some stories and um yeah try to create something together you know make it a collective sort of communal experience uh because we've we've mentioned this already uh, earlier in the show that uh everything we create as writers is a result of a community you know there are people behind us so uh i think that's what all writers need to be mindful of if they're planning on writing about indigenous experiences and people that you know what <laughs> I love it when when authors give long answers and they apologize for it. it's like me and Brennan and the listeners crave for that man <laughs> if you were if you were just like nah or yeah I'd be like oh okay well <laughs> I don't get it <laughs> thank you for that man it, it yeah, gave no me a lot to think about too and you know I, I was gonna wait until we were talking privately but this could, you know what this might help someone I've got a story in my head with the tribe that was in uh, is still in the area where I grew up in the Wampanoag. So it gave me a lot to think about as well. Mm -hmm. um, gave me some ideas and directions. And I always thought that the very most you want to be respectful because mm -hmm. uh, we're all storytellers. But yeah, it's certainly appreciated that 
you give me your point of view. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. And and ha- I'm happy to discuss this any other time if anybody ever wants to reach out. I, I mean, you know, the way I look at it is not like the one way to do it. And and a lot of people might disagree with me. Some people might say, no, you, you shouldn't write about Indigenous people at all. But uh, in that sense, like, I believe you're not properly reflecting reality. And then you're, I think, furthering the erasure of Indigenous people if you disallow non-indigenous people to even you know go into those areas you know um so yeah like <laughs> we could talk for hours about this but it's, it's a good good subject absolutely the thing that i never understood and i it's my opinion that if you feel what i'm about to say then i don't think you get storytelling is when someone says pretty much just write about who and what you know and this and that in the sense where it's like me and brendan we're white irish americans just write about that or whatnot it's like well that that's not that's not a storyteller i'd be very limited and then i would get shit for just writing about that <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you can't you can't win uh, no no and and that's that's the thing too though it's it's about your own perspective and and you know even though i'm writing specifically about nishinaabe people um my uh, my perspective is still limited too you know i'm i'm a cis hetero guy writing mostly about cis hetero people and and in moon of the crested snow like i i should have probably explored some you know gender diversity a little bit or you know some relationship diversity too you know so uh, I, I think having an opportunity to explore that a little more in a sequel is not necessarily like writing any wrongs it's just about providing a sort of more realistic snapshot of what a community can look like you know um so yeah you know i think yeah we, we should definitely look outside of our own perspectives but i think just think about the communities that we inhabit you know um yeah. most communities are have have some diversity uh in, in in some degree so uh yeah as storytellers it's imperative that we reflect that in uh, our episode six, episode sixty-eight, accepting rejection with Gabino Glacius, Joe Lansdale, uh, S. A. Cosby, and C. Palio, this subject's brought up too. Joe brings it up, but um, Gabino said it perfectly. He's like, "There's not one whatever experience. There's not one black or white because you know he brought up the black experience. It's." Not the same from a kid in Brooklyn to uh, a a girl in Jamaica mm-hmm. to someone growing up on the farm or someone in Britain and so so on and so on. It's a great point, mm-hmm. and you're just kind of uh, you're kind of saying a similar thing, and I I love it, man, because there's a lot of strong opinions online, especially from a lot of people that I'm like, I don't know. That's why I ask these questions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I do it for the episode, just to allow people the opportunity to hear, you know, indigenous or black or Latinx or whatever, what have you. Someone that's not mm-hmm. me. <laughs> Someone that's well, yeah, not just, just a straight white dude. Well, the conversation is the excellent starting point. You know, that's that's being a considerate person is having that talk beforehand. Uh, otherwise, I think what we uh, have seen over the course of the so-called canon of, of literature is is mostly white dudes just saying, you know, fuck it. I can write about whatever I want, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, a big problem. Um, but, you know, just considering the different perspectives in the first place is a huge, um, I guess, sort of advancement or a huge progression over, you know, what used to be, I guess, in the industry. I feel like it's going to make 
you know, a better writer, not just for me, but for whoever. Like the last two years that me and Brendan have really dove into this community, we've had so many different voices come on the show, talk to us in general, off air, on air, and it's making me, I feel like, a better writer, a better person, better friend, father, uh, which is the most, one of the most important things to me. Um, cool. Because, yeah. you know, you're a dad, Brendan's a dad. What do you mm. want to teach your boys to be better people? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Brandon, what do you, Brandon, what do you got for us, sir? I, you know, my big takeaway is you mentioned in, uh, you know, when you when you're writing the sequel, uh, having the opportunity to explore uh, different types of relationships or um, gender issues and stuff like that. Because that's the picture, that's the snapshot of the community, and I and I think that's the that's the point right there, is writing only who ver you know slightly altered versions of who you are doesn't accurately reflect really any community. God, mm -hmm. can you imagine a community full of people that look exactly like Pat? What a horrifying <laughs> place. Um, <laughs> That's my worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, you know, it's to to accurately reflect, you know, even if where everybody lives is not going to be exactly the same, there's always going to be a diversity, whether it's through gender identity, whether it's through uh, different types of relationships, whether it's through skin color, whether it's through culture, mm -hmm. um, and and to constantly paint your. Uh, your backgrounds, your supporting characters as pretty much just different sides of the same mirror, it's mm. it's no good. <laughs> yeah. It's not interesting and it's not ac accurate. It's not authentic. Well, yeah, and it's also... Oh, go ahead, Patrick. I was just going to make a joke saying, imagine Lord of the Rings with just hobbits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, the only thing I was going to say is, is it's not realistic either, you know, because I think that would be a pretty big tell if everybody was just uh, various versions of the same mirror, as you said, Brennan, like be, you would be able to see that you know, that person may not have as wide a perspective as the of the world as everybody else does. And the thing is, like, we're so connected to different experiences nowadays because of social media and because of just uh, digital media and mainstream media in general that, um, yeah, that narrow scope isn't isn't as realistic I, I don't think as as it has been portrayed in literature of the past right so you know what i'd love to jump into a new venture with you man um you and jennifer author jennifer david has a new podcast called yeah. storytellers please tell us about that man plug away yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate it. Well, it's it's my first foray into podcasting, and and obviously I'm inspired by all the great podcasts about writing, like like you guys. Um, uh, but yeah, Jennifer, um, she, uh, like we're like not really friends, like we're acquaintances, right? We know we knew each other because of working and living in Ottawa, where my wife and I used to live. Uh, and she reached out saying, hey, do you want to do a podcast about uh, Indigenous books? And I said, yeah, I think so. I think I'd be into that. 
that. And this was just after I left CBC last year. And, uh, you know, we had to do some research, but the, the way she presented it to me was just, we'll do it once a month. Uh, we'll just talk about one book by an indigenous author. We'll maybe bring a guest host in to talk about what that book means to them. And then we'll see how it goes. So we've only like had one episode out so far, but you know what? It has had a pretty good response and we'll have another episode coming out very shortly, um, with a guest host. Uh, but it's been, it's been really cool. I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, it's like what we're doing now, you know, and, and we're, we're just having a chat about things we're interested in, you know, talking about writing and books and so on. And I've never really had that opportunity before, you know, in in a sort of, I guess, uh, creative sense. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, it feels for me, and, and you, you mentioned this, like you learn all the time from all the writers you, you have in, like, uh, it's, it's a way to like publicly learn in real time. Like we recorded, uh, you know, our next episode just the other day and I'm like, you know, having my mind blown as we talk and I could have never done that before, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's been super fun and, and we'll see how it goes. You know, we're going to keep it going as long as we can. Um, but we mostly just want to make it an enjoyable process like uh as a side project for us you know because you know she has a primary gig and, and so do i uh but yeah it's called story keepers uh you can find us on uh facebook instagram and uh twitter our website is called storykeeperspodcast.ca and you can see a list of the uh books that we're going to be discussing over the next little while and uh yeah so please subscribe and check it out that's awesome is uh i apologize this is storytellers is story keepers on app you might have just said this if if you did, I apologize. Uh, is it on Apple Podcasts? Yes, it is. And no, he didn't ask that. Yeah, it's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. It's on most of the big ones, I think. So perfect. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely gonna subscribe after this. Um, let's get into what are you reading right now? What are you reading right now, Wob? Well, I am reading, I mentioned Eden Robinson's Return of the Trickster. That's mm-hmm. the third book in her Trickster trilogy. Uh, that's what I'm reading right now. And we are we are going to be discussing that uh, in May for uh, Story Keepers. Uh, so that's that. I uh, just finished, um, I did uh, Blood Meridian, Cormac McCarthy. Did a reread of that recently uh, for, for some weird reason. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, one of the reasons I wanted to reread it was because um, I really uh, liked how he wrote about the land itself and how mm-hmm. he wrote about movement through the land. And, you know, that's sort of what I'm trying to do with the sequel to Moon of the Crested Snow, right? So I sort of turned to it for inspiration, but it's like a pretty messed up book to to say you're inspired by because, you know, it is such a violent uh, book. But uh, yeah, that's what I last read before this. And after Return of the Trickster, um, I don't know. I'll have to take a look at my pile. It's uh, at the bedside as usual, you know. So, you know, man, it's okay. Like you're talking to your people because yeah. for the after I read The Girl Next Door, I was like, I told Bram, like, I love this book, and then I was like, ooh, I don't know if I want to say that because yeah. it's kind of <laughs> fucked up. But but then we talked to some people, and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, it's a fucked up story, but it's powerful. It's in the context of the type of story, it's the most powerful thing I think I'll ever read of mm. that nature. Yeah. Uh, so I do love it. I love the writing. But yeah. it, if I told like someone that doesn't love reading and they're like, what's it about? I'd be like, nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or even something like, uh, I don't know, like Choke by uh, Chuck Palahniuk, you know. <laughs> How would you tell, explain that to just a casual reader too, you know. <laughs> I just read Guts that haunted uh, – 
the novel Haunted and Guts is yeah. in that. Oh, the first shit. time. Yeah. My asshole still puckers <laughs> oh, up every. Now, every time I'm, whenever I'm near a pool, that's I'm like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I guess this is a good reminder. Now uh, we're recording with Wob on April thirtieth. Uh, we're talking with Chuck and the three days. Still March, by the way. Chrono- chronological order this episode comes two episodes after his so check out his episode i don't know what we're talking about because we haven't recorded it yet but yeah read guts <laughs> <laughs> that's um, cool you guys are talking you guys are talking to chuck eh it's uh th- yeah we'll mention him on the episode but a, fr- a listener and a friend of the show tyler jones is friends with him in real life and um no way that's just, cool yeah uh very thankful for that Wow, that's awesome. Trying to find a connection for Clive Barker. That'd be awesome. (laughs) Holy shit, that'd be awesome, too. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to (laughs) happen. Brennan, what are you reading? Um, You know, I think I'm due for a reread of Blood Meridian. uh, That sounds good. I'll have that. Um, (laughs) I've never read that. That sounds really good. Oh, you'd like it, man. You'd like it. I just started this monster. Malignant Summer from Tim Meyer, uh, just like just under 600 pages, uh, and I'm about you know seven pages in, so I got a little ways to go. But uh, hell, hell of an introduction, um, and it's it, it's it's that kind of um, it, it's that coming of age um, subgenre, I guess is the best word. I who knows words anymore, um, but. It, it has that kind of. Uh, it takes place in 1998, so you know, in 1998, I'd have been I'd have been 13 years old. Uh, like this, this speaks to me. Um, I, as as cool as it is, when everything was taking place in the 80s, love the 80s. I was five when the 80s ended. Um, so this is you know now now that we're seeing uh, coming of age horror fiction with you know 12 year olds in the late 1990s like this is my jam cool. uh, i hope we i hope we hang out here for a while uh me i'm reading the paradox twins by i love that cover i can't cool. look it's pretty i don't yeah, it is it's weird for some guys to hear that like every guy at my work would probably be like they'd say a lot of stuff that i'm not gonna repeat but i think it's pretty i love it it's a beautiful cover um that's in lullaby by chuck um this is my fourth Chuck Palahniuk book. I'm listening to audiobook uh, audiobooks right now because due to everything that, you know, new family, full-time job, trying to write and shit, audiobooks are my best friend. I mm. listen to Moon of the Crow. I, I own it, but I listen to the audiobook uh, version of Moon. Um, I meant to bring that up. Bill Murrasty. Yeah. He did a good job. Oh, he did when a great he- job. Yeah. Whenever he repeated one of the elders saying "fuck," it made me laugh every time. <laughs> but this is the fourth Chuck Palahniuk book I'm reading in uh, two weeks, and um, it's seeping into my own fiction now. I'm like, where did this come from? I like it. I'm gonna roll with it. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> You gotta space that shit out, man. You're gonna be you're gonna need like uh, rehab after this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I read one more book by him within the span of a month, I'm I don't know, man. I'm gonna need some mental evaluations. So we've already asked pretty much what your upcoming projects are. Uh, where can people follow you? 
Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm at Wab at W-A-U-B. Also on Instagram, same handle at W-A-U-B. On Facebook at Wab Gijic Rice, W-A-U-B-G-E-S-H-I-G-R-I-C-E. I have a personal website. It's just Wab.ca, W-A-U-B.ca. I haven't updated it in a while, though, uh, so there's uh, not a whole lot there. But, uh, you know, it's just with a blog, it's, you know, the, the thing that you always say you're going to get to, but don't always... Uh, because of other stuff on the go uh but yeah that's my digital presence basically right there it looks like you have two facebook pages and they're both like fan pages oh yeah i have a a personal one uh and and an author one um I, i try to keep most of the writing stuff to the author one uh it's just a picture of me in like a black hoodie uh and the personal ones with me and my yabe my my second son um yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to manage Facebook. That's the hard thing, though, man. So it's like it's an ongoing uh, dilemma, you know. Uh, I saw this funny thing. It wasn't even a meme. It was just something about how MySpace Tom never fucked us with our security, but Zuckerberg <laughs> did. Yeah. And uh, we, my wife and I were watching, um, what was it? We were watching something recently where, God, I can't think of it for the life of me, where it was basically someone that took a bit oh yeah that's right mcdonald's we watched the founder where um ray Kroc, i think that's the guy that yeah. took mcdonald's from the two brothers and basically cut them out to make any money <laughs> and i'm just thinking like apparently you gotta be an asshole if you're really really smart because i'm thinking like steve jobs fucked uh his friends zuckerberg yeah. fucked the twins that helped him get facebook yeah. going but not my space tom no that's right <laughs> tom would that never- uh yeah tom didn't get the movie deals what's up with that (laughs) a reminder to everyone dead space uh dead head it's late recording this so i apologize the dead head space dead head space has a merch store now all you gotta do is i'm just gonna say go on google dead head space merch because i don't know what the link is on the top of my head where we have a mask with my goofy mug on it, a coffee mug with my mug on it, a few other things with my mug on it. So check that out. Final thoughts, yeah, yeah. Brennan. You can, uh, you can also go on deadheadspace.com, uh, and it links right to the store from there. Nailed it. That was much more concise. Brennan, any final thoughts? <laughs> you just you, you left us with the store, like, just go Google it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. My final thoughts are, uh, Wob, I I appreciate your time spending almost two hours with us, uh, listening to our bullshit and giving us some really, really good, thoughtful answers. Uh, Appreciate every minute, man. Uh, I am honored to be able to bullshit with you guys. This was a super fun conversation. I uh, just really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, really encouraged by, you know, your uh, enthusiasm for my book and, and some of the things that I had to share. You know, I just uh, I'm very grateful for an opportunity like this. And uh, to be on your show was super cool. And I just really enjoyed chatting with both of you guys. And yeah, just eager to, to keep this friendship going with you both. Uh, this is pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah, man. Uh, before we recorded, I was telling Wob how nervous I was. I don't get that way with most guests. I I, I did with Josh Mallerman. I did with the guys uh, on the host movie, and I did with you. So <laughs> I don't know, man. You're super nice. So I don't know what Aww. the hell the problem is, but <laughs> yeah, your book was 
it just had an impression on me. I want to read more. We want you back, especially for the sequel. Uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get you for a nice little, uh, I call them round tables, but I guess it's not when it's uh, focused on one book. Maybe it is. I don't know. What, what do words mean? Hey, I'll, I'll be there anytime. So, yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much, man. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Next week, a week from now, Monday, I don't know the date, we'll be with Kathy Koja. And uh, the previous episode was with Joshua Chaplinski. Check that out before that. Chuck Palahniuk. Thank you for joining us. There's a lot of podcasts to listen to. We appreciate you picking this one. Have a good one. You are now leaving Deadhead Space. Um, hey, at this point, do you guys mind if we take a bathroom break? I don't normally I wouldn't ask if we could stop and I could cut all this out, but I don't want to miss any of this. Uh, no. <laughs> you have to hold it. <laughs> I don't think my wife would find it very manly <laughs> my pants for a, <laughs> for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>